All right. Well, here we go. This is a bonus episode of Beyond the Breakers that we got. Thank you for giving us money. Uh, so yeah, if you're if if you're listening to this episode right now, thank you for uh, contributing to the Patreon. Thanks for giving us a few of your hard-earned dollars. We definitely appreciate it. And yeah, so we hope we have a good, interesting show here that is worth, I don't even know, what is it, 3 or $5 right, that, yeah. that we're giving here. Um, so thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. But yeah, we uh, mainly we, we just want to have a good story here. I don't know, Taylor, how are you doing today? I'm good. Pretty good. It's uh, late August in Ohio. It's hot. I wish it was fall so it wasn't so hot, mm-hmm. but you know, hanging in there. How's it in Wisconsin? Yeah, it's not not too bad. It's it's consistent heat. It's just such a problem. I mean, like almost every aspect of life. But we'll <laughs> we'll skip over that. This is a bonus episode. That's not what people pay to listen to. All right. So I had mentioned this, I think, on the main episode like two weeks ago when we had discussed the August bonus content. And this is a story I wanted to cover for a while, but it kind of is a story with a lot of aspects, a lot of things to cover. I didn't want to rush it. And so finally, here we are. Uh, We are going to talk about the scuttling of the German high seas fleet at Scapa Flow. Hell yeah. This will be a good one. Uh, This should be a good one. So as we're jumping into this, as always, we like to set things up. Background information is good. The lead up to the incident itself. This, I guess, would also be different from our other episodes in that I don't guess I would call this a disaster. I guess it depends on whose perspective it is. Kind of, and even even a lot of the powers involved don't necessarily see this as a bad thing, and we'll we'll get into that later. But yeah, I guess an incident. It could almost be like an incident, like an interesting note. An incident is probably a good way to describe it. I don't think we can call it a disaster in the same way that most of our shows are, and that's why I kind of was leaning toward doing this as a bonus episode. It's not totally in line, but we have a lot of the same factors. However, it is right. it's very rare on our show that we discuss ships that are sunk intentionally. Yeah, I don't think we've ever done that, actually. And even rarer to have a ship sunk intentionally by its own crew. I take that back. The Atlas tanker was definitely Right. You know, we, we've talked about, like, Atlas tanker. We talked about the, uh, what was the, the Lancastria. Of course, the, True. those were sunk based on enemy intent. These are right. probably the first ships we'll talk about sunk by their own crews. But I'm getting ahead of myself, of course. So let's talk background. And by background, I do mean the First World War. The war to end all wars. The, the last time that anyone ever had a war against each other. Never happened after that. So let's talk about World War I. All right. And specifically, the naval aspect of World War I. The focus of this episode is, of course, on the German high seas fleet, Hochseeflotte. So this is a this is a fleet that basically has its origins in competition with the Royal Navy. That's literally the only reason it exists is to compete with the Royal Navy. Anyone interested in the history of Germany, or anyone interested in European history, knows Otto von Bismarck. Bismarck, you know kind of the architect of that unified German state, was pretty highly opposed to Germany having a big, strong navy. Like, just as, like, a a waste of resources, essentially? Basically, uh, kind of, you know, Bismarck with him, we, we always talk about 
realpolitik and being very pragmatic. Mm-hmm. And this is a, kind of a good example of that. He sort of understood that Britain has a like two to three hundred year head start on us in terms of having a unified nation with a solid navy. We're not going to catch up. We can't just pump our resources into factories and hope to catch up with this in 10, 20 years. It's not going to happen. Right, right. And so he was very kind of dismissive of the idea of even trying to compete with the Royal Navy at sea. And he, he kind of saw that the destiny of a united Germany was in continental Europe. He's saying, yes, we can definitely have the, maybe not the biggest, but we can have the best army in Europe. But we'll probably never have the best or the biggest fleet. Right. However, of course, as students of history will know, we get a guy on the German throne by the name of Kaiser Wilhelm II. (laughs) What do you know about Wilhelm II? Mostly that he's related to, like, every other fail leader that is in charge of Europe at this time. That's true. I mean, yeah, you could... His family tree is a flat line basically across uh, all across Europe but I know that he wasn't quite the pragmatist that Bismarck was yeah you could definitely uh, say that Wilhelm II dismissed Bismarck within the first year of, of taking over as Kaiser obviously Bismarck was starting to get up there in age but at the same time mm-hmm. we always kind of in politics you hear this phrase a lot I think in, in modern American politics of you always want to have that adult in the room I was just going to say that, actually. Yeah. This is the exact same thing. And to me, that's that's kind of the perspective I see from Bismarck, uh, where he's the experienced guy. He has He's gone through all of this stuff of sort of hammering together this unified German state. And that's not a comment on the goodness or badness of Otto von Bismarck. That's a whole different conversation. Right. But he's gone through this. He more or less understands what Europe is and what it or how it works. Mm -hmm. And then you have this Wilhelm II taking the throne. And that's not really his thing. Pragmatism. So he dismisses Bismarck pretty quickly. He says, eh, you're kind of an old man. I'm, I'm done with you. It's like the meme of, uh, from Toy Story of the kid throwing away Woody. Um, (laughs) I I don't want to play with you anymore. Yeah, we have that Wilhelm to me. Wilhelm II reminds me of, Basically, like, a person who, if the game, the computer game Civilization had existed during his lifetime, mm-hmm. like, maybe that would have changed the course of history. Because it seems like that's what he really wanted to do. Right. Was just, was just like, was like, I want cool stuff. I want a cool yeah. army. I want a big navy. I want cool technology stuff. And then you it's you have these... Kind of, kind of like... When you play Civilization and you just invade everyone constantly and you don't care about happiness or anything. Right, like, none of that matters. Like, I just want this stuff, this is what I want, and all these people telling me I can't do it, well, you're fired. Right, and I know, uh, I don't want to get into a super deep, like, German discussion here, but, I mean, I think part of, like, missing out on, like, a lot of the uh, colonization in Africa and South America also played a role in this with Mm. the Germans, that they didn't have the colonies that a lot of the other European powers had, so... You know, what is left for Germany but to, you know, expand the homeland, basically. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting aspect of, of that time, that late 1800s, early 1900s time, of sort of everyone kind of deciding what do we want, um, what do we need as a country. 
And yeah, Bismarck was definitely of the opinion that, well, we don't necessarily want these. We don't want to be fighting overseas. We don't want these colonies. We don't need a big navy. We want to dominate the European continent. And so he gets dismissed. Um, and pretty soon after that, we enter into this sort of arms race where, you know, what was formerly a pretty small Prussian state, now a, you know, more powerful unified Germany starts to just beef up its navy. Um, and pretty quickly, they build the second biggest navy in the world. Interesting. Again, with the express intent of being able to contend with the Royal Navy. So that's a a quick discussion of the lead up here. I'll skip over the war stuff. But of course, as we all know, war breaks out in 1914 after this whole big series of alliances uh, sort of comes to blows. So yeah, the German high seas fleet role in the war Again, it was always to threaten the Royal Navy. And so this is kind of when they finally have to put their money on the table, if you will. Mm-hmm. They, right. they spent all these years building up and saying, well, we want to do this. We're going to compete with the Royal Navy. And here's where they finally have to do it. So in 1914, at the Battle of Heligoland Bight. It's a fun name. It is. This is the first big major naval engagement of the First World War. And this is... A pretty bad beating that they suffer at the hands of the Royal Navy. It's not much of a fight in terms of numbers. The British have a pretty smashing victory. The Germans lose over 700 soldiers, or um, sailors, um, and I believe like four ships. So it's it's really not that, that much of a contest. This first time they really come right. to blows, it's a knockout punch almost from the Royal Navy. It's kind of embarrassing for the Germans. They've spent all this time building up this fleet, and this is what happens. Yeah, it's kind of like you're the scrappy upstart, but like you just get smacked down right this, away. This whole time, so the, the whole um, interaction between the two navies in the war, what I would compare it to, it's a bit like boxing, where not just do you have the boxing match, you have the months leading up to it, where both sides are talking, both sides are saying, I'm going to do this, this, and this to this person, this person's nothing, I'm going to wipe the floor with this person. And then it finally comes, and then you have, like, a KO in the first round. Not exactly the same situation. We'll, we'll get into more detail here. So, again, that, that first engagement does not bode well for the German Navy. They're a little bit reluctant to keep engaging the Royal Navy in open combat. So that's where we get this coastal raiding. Uh, this is something that was new to me when I was doing the research. I didn't realize that the German Navy actually raided the coast of Britain. During World War One, I, I, I did. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. Literally, just just sailing up close and shelling seaside areas, and I believe like several hundred British people, like civilians, died uh, due to this. I guess uh, the the V one and the V two program in World War Two was just like a continuation of kind of. Let, <laughs> let's just continue to like randomly attack the British countryside, right? And so, so whereas those like the talk of the later. V1, V2 things. Whereas those are kind of more desperation terror weapons, these actually do have kind of a strategic goal. Like they're attacking like a port or a, some sort of infrastructure target, some, I would imagine. Somewhat. That, that happens sometimes. But again, they're very reluctant to do anything that's going to get them in contact with the Royal Navy. A lot of this is much more to lure the Navy out into the open seas where maybe they can score kind of a sucker punch against them. 
Um, so the whole goal right. here is to, to lure them out into the open sea. Which is kind of their only chance to do something like that. Uh, so one of the results of this is the Battle of Dogger Bank. In 1915, these raids were happening. The Royal Navy decides to pursue, come out, and, and try to take out this, this German uh, raiding fleet. This is not really a you know, face-to-face battle. This is kind of just the Germans trying to escape and the Navy, the Royal Navy chasing after them. This does result in the loss of the German cruiser SMS Blucher and about a thousand men. So again, not really a face-to-face slug-it-out battle. It's kind of one of those pursuit battles, and the tail end of the German fleet does suffer some casualties. The casualty counts in these are always crazy to me, because, like, yeah, these aren't massive, you know, battles. They aren't, Mm -hmm. like, pitched, you know, hard-fought battles at sea, the way that, like, especially in the Pacific, some of the World War II battles would be. Mm -hmm. But there's, like, a thousand men, you know. Right. On board a a German cruiser. That's crazy. Uh Yeah, it's like the Battle of Dogger Bank is a relatively minor engagement, but still with this with this ship sinking and a couple of other damaged ships, you have a thousand men dead. It's a pretty interesting part of the war that I really had not read significantly about before this. Definitely worth reading more about. Uh, So we talked about Heligoland Bight. We talked about Dogger Bank. This leads us up to 1916, the most famous naval battle of the war. The Battle of Jutland. Which I will say Jutland, even though every part of my being always wants to say Jutland. But I think in English we pronounce it Jutland, actually. The Germans call it the Battle of Skagerrak. That's also fun. Which is a cooler name, I think. The Battle of Skagerrak. Yeah, I like that. Anyway, this is the most famous naval battle of World War I. This happens over the course of May 31st to June 1st, 1916. And this is kind of one of those historical moments that's interesting to look back at. This is the last time that big fleets of battleships will ever engage each other in a big pitched battle. Which is is strange thinking about how long after this we still use battleships. That's true. I mean, I guess with the development of aircraft carriers and stuff like that Mm -hmm. in World War II, like you begin to transition to like the fleets don't see each other. Generally, yeah, they they stop being the thing that you use in combat. They're kind of there well, it, as a deterrent and as a you know coastal bombardment uh, option, but they're not really the thing that you're using to fight. Right, like everything's set up around the air wing and everything of the aircraft carrier protecting the aircraft carrier mm-hmm. at that point. Right. So the Battle of Jutland, tactically, you could say that this is a German victory. From what I've seen, that's generally the consensus that this was just based on numbers, a a tactical victory for Germany. But in terms of overall strategy, this ends up being a little bit more beneficial for the Royal Navy. Both sides kind of claim victory, but neither one really does what they wanted to do. You know, Britain wanted to have a decisive knockout victory. They didn't get that. Germany also was hoping to take out a bigger portion of the fleet than they did. They inflicted pretty heavy casualties, but they were really hoping for more. Well, and I feel like tactical victories in this scenario aren't going to get it done. Mm -hmm. Like, Britain can just lose more than you, and they're still going to be okay. Yeah, this is is very much that situation where, and, and this is kind of why almost immediately Germany realizes that we can't do this. We cannot get involved in battles like this, because... Well... And also, I think that th- like the the three four hundred year tradition of the British Navy comes into play, where 
you've got more experienced officers, you've got more experienced seamen. Germany, you know, if you're losing your most experienced people, you can't replace them. Yeah, like Whereas these, these Britain has a bigger pool. Yeah, these are ships, these are people we cannot afford to lose. Whereas Britain has kind of a deeper reserve of those things. Right. Uh, so yeah, the long-term effect basically from this is that the German Navy doesn't really go out on sorties after this anymore. They're- yeah, that's one thing I like remember from like learning World War One stuff is that like the German Navy essentially disappears. Yeah, even though this is again, this is arguably a victory for Germany, it's one of those it's it's a Pyrrhic victory in a sense, in the sense that like one more victory like this and we don't have a navy again. Like um so we're just gonna stay home, essentially. I love this quote that you pulled from the newspaper, the American newspaper. Oh, yes. Do, the, do, 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 the, do you want to read it? Yeah, yeah, I'll read it. It says, The German fleet has assaulted its jailer, but it is still in jail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a great way of putting it, honestly. Yeah, really. I mean, it is. like they, they definitely gave the Royal Navy a bloody nose. But kind of like you just mentioned, the Royal Navy can recover from that. Oh, I was just going to say, like, geographically looking at it, I know, like, being Americans... We know European geography decently, but like not in detail. That, that's a great way of putting it because basically, if the British don't want to let the Germans come out and play, like they're not going to. Mm-hmm. Like you have them bottled up as much as you want them to be bottled up. Oh, exactly. And we'll we'll get into that later when we talk about uh, more specifically about Scapa Flow. But yeah, this is that's that's exactly what this is. The Royal Navy. Um, I'm really starting to agree with Bismarck on all this. <laughs> not a good idea to challenge the Royal Navy at sea at this point in history. So after the Battle of Jutland or the Battle of Skagerrak, this again, this this just kind of highlights what we just talked about. Admiral Jellicoe of the Royal Navy, when he gets back to fleet, he tells his superiors, we could sail again in four hours. Give me four hours to fix some stuff, refit some things, replace some people, some ships. We can go back out. I just want to say that Admiral Jellicoe is probably one of the top five names that we've had. It's a very cool name. On this podcast. I love that name. It's a very cool name, uh, for sure. However, on the other hand, Reinhard Scheer of the German high seas fleet told his superiors he would need until at least August to go out to sea again. (laughs) So remember, this is happening the end of May and the first day of June. And he's telling them, I need... Like a month or two, two months before I can I can take the fleet back out. That's crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think that just shows you like where, like even the command, like where they're at, as far as being able to redeploy or you know move resources around to pursue. Mm-hmm. Like even if the Germans had won a more decisive victory, could they have pushed it? Probably not. Right. Like, like the, they're not doing the, anything with it. The victory that the Germans needed at a battle like Jutland would have needed to be just one of the most spectacular victories in world history. And that's not what they got. Right. Like they got a little, little bit of a victory, but not the majestic thing that they needed. So yeah, while the British did technically lose more ships sunk in the battle, that doesn't mean the Germans didn't suffer. Also, they had a ton of major damage to these ships that made them basically unseaworthy. So that's going to keep them laid up for a little bit of time. Um, so yeah, in in the grand scheme of things, the Battle of Jutland we could we can look at much more as a draw or even a Royal Navy victory. Interesting. And this is where we get into more of the unrestricted U-boat warfare. Hmm. If I can't beat your navy at sea, I'm going to send out the one 
sort of ace in the hole that I do have, uh, which is my U-boat fleet. This definitely won't cause any problems for no. later. No, no, no. This is a huge contributing factor. Seeing that we cannot challenge the Royal Navy at sea, we cannot win naval supremacy, but we're going to use this thing that we do have, these U-boats. We're going to target all of the shipping that is necessary for the war on the continent. Um, and again, this is where we have this unrestricted U-boat warfare, which is obviously a big contributing factor to the United States entering the war. And probably gives us multiple episodes to do for the main show. Yes, for sure. So with that, again, who won World War One? You could argue about that forever. The United States entering the war was a big factor in that it kind of served as that tipping point. You know, this, this might not end in a stalemate. This might end in an allied victory. I'm going to use the word allied instead of entente just because I don't think the United States was technically included in the... And like we... And we literally never call it that here. In the Entente? <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't think most Americans know what the Entente powers are. And I don't think we were even technically involved in that ever. So uh, I'll call them the Allies. So World War I ends on November 11th, 1918, in terms of the armistice. If you guys want more than our 15-minute like synopsis, I would recommend Dan Carlin's Blueprint for Armageddon. It's like yes. 12 hours long and probably the best... like. Easy, accessible source for like a complete World War One overview. Yeah, most definitely. Like, in terms of podcasts, that is probably one of the best ones I've listened to that covers this topic. Also, if you're if you're interested in the sort of the lead up and and how how we got to the point of World War One happening, I would recommend Barbara Tuchman's book, The Guns of August. Mm-hmm. Really phenomenal book. We're going to skip over that. Brings us to the end of the war. Uh, so at the end of the war, of course, the U-boats are the primary concern for the Allies. Right. They, wa- they want those. They're going to confiscate those immediately, uh, just to make sure that those don't become an issue later. Notably, they weren't in World War II whatsoever, right? No, uh, no never, never a problem with U-boats. <laughs> uh, so the surface fleet concerns came a little bit later, just because, as we kind of said, that was less of an immediate threat. Well, I guess also, like, it's not like you're going to be sneaking a battle cruiser out. Right. It's, like, it's much harder we, to do. We kind of know where that is. Yeah. We can see the uh, Friedrich der Grossa sailing out of harbor right now. So there was a big debate, though, among the Allied powers about, first of all, what to do with these ships. Like, where should we put them? Should we put them in Allied ports? Or should we intern them in neutral ports? Of course, the Germans wanted them in, interned in neutral ports. But it was also very hard for them to find a neutral port that would accept this. Um, Interesting. Like, was there some thought of like, hey, we might be handing some of these back to Germany at some point? Or I don't know that that was a factor. I think at least with the neutral ports, the issue was this war just ended. There's no guarantee that like peace will be lasting. I guess it wasn't even about the ships. It was probably like, what do we do with these, like, the thousand men on right. the ship? Right, you, like, you've got all the, you've got the crews, the officers, all, all kinds of things to think about here. I think it, are it they was... Prisoners? It was, are they prisoners? Deta- like, are they detained? Like, what, what is their status? I it guess? was much more, I think, not, not wanting to take on the responsibility of these, what were kind of prisoners of war, but also not really. Which right. is a weird situation. I think most neutral countries in that situation would probably just choose not even want to get involved choose, like we we've been neutral the whole time why should we get involved now uh so the surrender negotiations for the german high seas fleet mm-hmm. these were handled by admiral hugo moirer 
This is on November 15th to 16th in 1918. So just a few days after the armistice is signed, uh, we have these naval negotiations. In the notes, I have negotiations in quotes. These are really not negotiations. This is basically unilateral (laughs) demands being given and then some pushback from the Germans. But overall, of course, the Germans really aren't in a position where they can request too much. Um, So Maurer had been delegated this task by Franz von Hipper, who was the overall commander of the fleet. We'll talk about him a little bit more later. It's interesting that like those negotiations are like a foreshadowing of all of the negotiations that Germany will go through after World War One mm-hmm. of like all the allies basically saying like this is what's happening and Germany being like, Can we please have a little bit? And, yeah, like just give us being, like, no. like throw us a little bone here and they're like, No. No. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Not at all. So the German fleet ultimately, after these discussions, negotiations, determined that the German fleet should be interned at Scapa Flow. Uh, Scapa Flow is in the Orkneys, in the north of Scotland. It's a big natural harbor, and it served as the base of operations for the British Grand Fleet from World War One up until 1956, when the base was closed down. Interesting. I guess it's just kind of like isolated. It's isolated. Head, it's a good. It's a good deep harbor, and it like even before the World Wars, it it does have a pretty long history of involvement in Britain militarily. I believe. James Graham, I think also, the, the Marquis of Montrose, he had a, a fleet or a few ships there during the English Civil Wars in the 1600s. The location also makes a lot more sense when you think that, like, Germany is a problem mm-hmm. versus, like, other things. But, like, you're really well positioned to, to be like, hey, if Germany's acting up, like, we can bottle them up really quick from that position. Right. Like, in if we're looking at, like, earlier English-British history... Somewhere like Portsmouth maybe makes more sense if you're concerned about France or concerned about Spain. Right, like Plymouth, Bournemouth, places like that where, yeah, you can deploy quickly into the English Channel where you're worried about an attack coming from. But if you're worried about Germany or if you want that leverage to to bottle up the North Sea, somewhere like Scapa Flow makes a lot more sense. Right. All right, so let's talk about the internment of the fleet. So in command of the German high seas fleet as it entered internment was Admiral Ludwig von Reuter. Uh, That's a good one. Very good admiral name. A lot, lot of good. It, say what you want about the Germans. They have, good, they have good admiral and general names. He took command on November 18th, so basically a week after the armistice is signed. Just like what we talked about with the negotiations, this is also a delegated task from Franz von Hipper who refused to participate personally in leading his ships into internment. Uh, so Von Hipper was a bit of a, a sore loser in all this. Basically saying, I am I will not debase myself by leading these ships into internment. But you can do it. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I read this and I thought about Cornwallis at Yorktown and how Cornwallis didn't actually appear at the surrender. Like you see that I didn't, you I didn't know that. You see that in art, you see like there's there's like depictions and engravings and paintings of like Cornwallis handing his sword to George Washington. And that never happened because Cornwallis was quote unquote ill on the day that that was supposed to happen. He signed the surrender documents in his tent, I believe, but he had his subordinate go and do the actual surrender. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That's what this reminded me of kind of just the very you know, Cornwallis was conveniently ill at the Yorktown surrender. But at least here, it seems like Von Hipper's excuse was just, no, I'm not going to do that. So I guess props to him for being just honest about it. 
by acting like a toddler. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Is honesty or pedantry? I don't know what that is. I feel like you're probably in one of those situations where, like, what choice do you have? Like, you kind of lost all your leverage when you yeah, it's like lost so- the war. Someone has to do it. But anyway, that someone ended up being his subordinate, Admiral Von Reuter. I like to think that Von Reuter just didn't have anyone else he could delegate it down to. He's like, yeah, I guess I got to do this thing. Basically, that's what it seems like. <laughs> um, and he's, he said, quote, personal feelings had to step to the rear. It's a good quote. Which is an admirable perspective uh, like to take. Admirable? Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the admirable Admiral Von Reuter. So anyway, Von Hipper sort of just steps off the stage and lets Von Reuter take over here. So he'll be the guy who's in charge of the fleet as it's under internment. So when the initial rendezvous happened between the combined fleet, so the German fleet, you know, these negotiations happen, the German fleet sails out, they meet this combined fleet. It was not just Royal Navy vessels. I believe there were some other French and possibly American vessels involved too. There's a big, big fleet here. And they rendezvous, I believe, in the Firth of Forth in Scotland. Okay. And these following orders are given by Admiral Beatty of the British Grand Fleet. He orders, quote, The German flag will be hauled down at sunset today and will not be hoisted again without permission. Okay. This is a pretty contentious request from the German perspective. Because one thing to keep in mind here is that the, the war has just ended like a week or two ago. Right. And nothing is signed. Nothing's agreed on. Like, no one is totally sure that the war won't just pick back up. That's, right, and I guess, like, the, the Germans aren't saying that they're doing this as prisoners. They're doing this as, like, just not wanting to fight, essentially. Yeah, right? they're, they're, they're more or less negotiating as equals here at this point. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is a ceasefire. This is an armistice. This is, to them, at this point, not quite a surrender. So the idea that they're being ordered by this British admiral to take down their flag is, is a big deal. Very prickly about this. Understandably so. Mm-hmm. These ships are still technically the property of the Imperial German Navy, and this British admiral doesn't necessarily have the authority to tell them what to do. That ends up being complied with. Uh, they, they do take down the German standards. Because, again, from a pragmatic perspective, they don't have a huge amount of choice here. Right, like, I don't think they have any real leverage. Right. Like you're, just, it's, you're kind of hoping that Britain wants to play with you. It's, it's far more relying, I think, on kind of that classical chivalry, being able to, you know, keep your arms and present your colors as you go into surrender. Right. Uh, eventually some stragglers would come in. 74 German ships in total were interred. Interned, not interred. Well, some of them were interred, but we'll get to that later. Uh, <laughs> interned at Scapa Flow. All this happened by January of 1919. And we have the ship Friedrich der Grossa. Frederick the Great serving as the flagship. I'm just going to call it Frederick the Great when it comes up later. That's a hard set of words to pronounce in German. <laughs> so the ships were ordered to disarm. That was a big factor here. Obviously, you, 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 don't, want, you don't want all these ships sail, sailing into your, your naval base with all of their guns still armed. Right. Um, so a quote here regarding that. Armaments had to be removed or rendered useless. It was no easy task to remove the breech blocks from 15-inch guns. Much of that expensive equipment was torn or burned out and dumped on the keys or simply cast overboard. That's just crazy to think that you're just ripping out stuff and just tossing it overboard. It's just, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, we, we talk about the 
about this on the podcast a lot and how ships have this sort of special relationship with the people on them where it, it isn't just a machine. It isn't just a, a vessel. It's, it's the thing that protects you from the elements and the sea. And, it, mm-hmm. and the idea that these sailors are having to rip out parts of it and just throw it into the ocean is pretty bizarre to think about. Yeah, um, I mean, bringing it to a little bit of a modern current event, I think we've seen some of that in Afghanistan in the last month, mm-hmm. where we see, you know, burned out Humvees or even in some cases helicopters that, like, we don't have a way of evacuating it. So, like, we destroy it. Like, it, it's weird to think about doing something like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. To quote from a British lieutenant, John Ouvry, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, he was on the light cruiser Inconstant, who was one of the escort vessels. Just real quick, I just want to say that I've always loved the British naming of ships. I don't know, something about it. Inconstant is they, a strange name for a ship. I know, it, it really is. Why but would I you, love why would you name a ship do. that? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but I just love the way that they name their ships. It's always like those strong, like one word names. Yeah. So he's quoted as saying, The excitement was, of course, intense, as it was impossible to tell whether the Hun had something up his sleeve for us or not. It seemed too wonderful for an extremely powerful fleet to give themselves up without a blow. (laughs) I love that everyone's suspicious. So there's a suspicion, and there's also that sense of sort of majesty. Like, this is a grand fleet that's just sort of Mm -hmm. surrendering itself. Without ever really being used. Right, you know, being kind of going out a few times, and it it hasn't really seen action in a while. So yeah, you can see that from opposing sailors. What a beautiful fleet. And it's it's you have this sense of shame almost that it it didn't get to see enough action. Right. Um, so quoting from Admiral von Reuter, who was talking about the conditions on that day. He's it was very hazy, very reduced visibility. He says, quote, Thus heaven conferred a certain mantle on our shame in the form of a light veil of mist. The most tremendous tragedy ever enacted at sea was thereby softened to the view. Mm. A powerful comment, I would say, this, this idea mm-hmm. that, again, as, as both sides are saying, this is this grand, beautiful fleet, and it's being surrendered without a fight. And you know, him, him kind of making the comment that not even God wanted us to see what was happening here. Um, <laughs> trying to put a little curtain over this. Just to, to right. keep it uh, to keep it respectable. Conversely, we have Admiral David Beatty of the Royal Navy saying, "Quote: We never expected that the last time we should see them as a great force would be when they're being shepherded like a flock of sheep by the Grand Fleet. It was a pitiable sight. In fact, I should say it was a horrible sight." It is interesting. It is interesting the pity that like they almost have for the, the German sailors. Yeah, and this is. I would say this is a massive contrast that you see between the First World War and the Second World War for what are probably pretty obvious reasons that we don't need to get into quite yet right. on this podcast. But you do. Like, this is kind of the last time that you have this war where both sides sort of have this respect for one another, and they just kind of give each other a salute, and they realize that it's a shame. This war is ending, and you didn't even, you didn't even get to fire your guns at us. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, like you said, for obvious reasons, this is kind is of it? the last of the, the last of like the rich nobilities like leading their nations into battle mm-hmm. for just pure like nationalism versus 
other political goals. Yeah. Not to whitewash war. War has always been a dirty thing, despite what poems and stuff will, will say about it. But again, like I think in the general consciousness, this is the last time that this happens, where we have that sense of chivalry almost. Right. So yes, that's what we see going into internment for the German fleet. Let's talk about the conditions of internment. All right. So these 70, eventually 74 German vessels enter Scapa Flow or the immediate areas. They're under guard. You know, there's British ships, there's British troops there making sure that they're not doing anything nefarious. But again, at this point, the morale of the German Navy is about as low as you can get for a, a military force. Like we said, the German Navy had been pretty much inactive since Jutland. These German crews had spent most of those previous two years in port, under blockade, very limited rations. It has not... What, like, the awful conditions to be in, too, like, where you know you're losing the war and, like, you're, you're just sitting there doing nothing. Right, you're, you're losing the war, there's nothing you can do about it. I'm, I'm sure someone could make the argument that even if you were in the trenches on the front line... You could tell yourself, at least I'm at least I'm shooting at someone. At least I'm doing something to try and help. But if you're in on these ships stuck in port, you're literally just stuck there. There's nothing you can do. Right. And this is basically two years we're talking about that this happens. Uh, so towards the end of the war, so this is October 1918, almost the end of the war. Reinhard Scheer, who we talked about before, the mm-hmm. Grand Admiral of the German Navy, he did plan one final all-out attack on the Royal Navy simply with the goal of causing as much damage as possible. Feels like a very German plan. Yeah, I mean, you could draw, I mean, if we're talking about World Wars, I guess you could maybe draw a comparison to something like the Battle of the Bulge. That's exactly where I was going with it. Again, I I don't know that much about the Battle of the Bulge, but that's kind of the sense I get from it. That sort of last... It was never never intended to, like, be, like, a victorious thing. It was always intended to cause as much casualty as possible. No logically thinking person on the German side probably thought that they were going to push the Allies back into the sea. It was always kind of just a a desperate roll of the dice. And that's that's what you have here. You could also compare it to something like, I don't know, like Pickett's Charge or something at Gettysburg, where is this going to work? Probably not. Can we make a good story out of it? Yeah. Yeah, we could do that. Pretty fortunate to see that the right thing happened. (laughs) <laughs> they, they didn't exactly. So this this doesn't end up taking place for kind of the reasons that we just talked about. There was never any intention of this actually having an impact necessarily, maybe prolonging the war slightly, maybe acquiring more favorable armistice terms. But there was never any intention of the succeeding. It's hard to motivate the crews, I imagine, too. It's like, hey, I know you've sat here and done nothing for two years but starve, but like now, now's your turn to go die for the Empire. Like, go. Yeah, it's like we... And everyone's looking around like, the war's over. Like, we've lost. Why would we go do this now? Yeah, I've been, we, been sitting here for two years, and now, like, obviously they don't, they don't know this at the time, necessarily, but right in the end game here, a month before the war ends, you're going to tell me to take my ship out and get probably all of my men killed. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this, this attack never happens. And it's definitely planned at the higher level, but essentially enough of the crews and the officers basically say no, <laughs> which is interesting. Like you kind of rarely see that in military history. Well, I mean, particularly, I feel like in the German military where it's noted how top down it is. Mm-hmm. And, like, you know, you don't take initiative on your own. And a lot of it's driven by command decisions. Yeah, this is essentially a large scale mutiny 
there's just not enough people who are willing to do this. Yeah, it's like a soft mutiny, I feel like. Yeah, and it's 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 indicative of more widespread feelings of unrest. You, I mean, you have German army units refusing to follow orders. Of course, on the home front in Germany, you have uh, labor strikes, you have industrial strikes, things like that. Uh, you have workers refusing to continue to do their jobs for the war effort. It's very widespread um, sort of insurrection mm-hmm. that's taking place here. Because, yeah, I mean, people have people have had it at this point. It's It's been a long war. It's been tough on everyone. They realize they're not going to win. So, yeah, at this point, you've got you've got whole crews sometimes of ships who are essentially revolutionaries. Uh, maybe it's just a portion of the crew sometimes. But, yeah, you have this communist, socialist, revolutionary fervor spreading throughout the throughout the, the Navy. Sounds like you're close to like a Potemkin situation. Kind of. Yeah. I mean, you have. You have that sort of atmosphere, definitely. And you, you, you know that the Germans are wary about that kind of thing. Right. Um, so this got so bad, actually. <laughs> I thought this was a funny little anecdote. Admiral von Reuter actually requested permission from the British to change his flagship from the, Fre- <laughs> from the Frederick the Great to the Emden, which I believe was just like a destroyer, because groups of, quote, Red Guards aboard his ship uh, were preventing him from sleeping. They would just, like, stomp on the... <laughs> the uh, the deck on the floor, like around his compartment, and prevent him from sleeping. Do you was that like a communist like subgroup or something? Y- that... y- basically, yeah. So you had these groups on some of the ships, these red guards who just would refuse to do anything essentially that they were ordered to do. German officers on these ships were described on one occasion as being quote dumb with shame when visited by <laughs> Royal Navy officers. Like, what do you do? You've trained your life for this. You've served throughout this whole war. It hasn't gone well, and then suddenly you are just literally interned. You're kind of in limbo. You're technically well. It doesn't even. You're not even like really in charge of your crew anymore. If they're just doing whatever they want, yeah. You you can't even command your crew to do anything. You you couldn't take this ship anywhere if you wanted to. Um, I, I guess you just huddle with the other officers and hope that none of the enlisted people get too frisky, right? So in terms of life on the ships, um, I realize we're get, this is going to be a long episode, probably. <laughs> Uh, but uh, but life on the ships. So most of the crews, originally you had around 20,000 crew uh, in all of these ships when they entered Scapa Flow. Uh, most of those are sent back to Germany, uh, mm-hmm. leaving just kind of basically a skeleton caretaker crew for these ships. And actually, this is, this is also one of the ways that von Reuter deals with these Red Guards, these sort of insurrections. Get rid of them. He, he's basically asked, you need to send this many people home you know, this month. And, of course, he's going to pick the troublemakers. Um, right. That's kind of how he deals with that, is he just sends them home. Which, again, will not cause any any problems in Germany in the years to come, having all of this political unrest. Um, so they had very, very little in terms of supplies. Basically no entertainment, nothing to do. These crews are just stuck here. Um, um, I just want to say that I have read just slightly forward from where you are, and there's a part that I cannot wait to get I'm, to. I think I probably know what you're talking about, and I'm excited <laughs> to get there. Um, so yeah, there's nothing to do. There's very little to eat. This obviously leads to poor discipline. You could excuse them for that, probably, in this situation. Yeah, I mean, like, you're in bad conditions. You're hungry. You're probably sick. There's no entertainment. There's nothing to do. And, like, you can't even leave. Like, you're stuck. If you're on, like, one of the smaller vessels, like, what do you do all day? Yeah. I, I saw on one source that they were, they basically had a ration of, they were given 300 cigarettes a month, which for me as a non-smoker sounds like a lot, but I also realized that if you are on a ship 
with nothing else. Nothing to do. Nothing else to do. Yeah. Maybe I burn through those pretty quick. Maybe, maybe that's maybe that's not enough. Um, th- then you've just got got a whole ship full of people with a nicotine addiction that can't get nicotine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and on that note, so crews are not permitted. This is not this is not like a a free movement zone. Crews are not permitted to go from ship to ship. You cannot leave your ship and go to a new one. If you if you've got buddies on another ship, you you can't go see them. That's not how this works. They can't go ashore. They can't go to other ships. From what I could see, Admiral von Reuter was the only person who was allowed to go from ship to ship, and probably like some of his personal staff. Mm. He had a special boat that he could use to go between the ships. They were even de- deprived of radio capability. That's pretty crazy. So they couldn't even talk to another right. You, ship. You, like could, were... you couldn't even have a conversation with another ship, basically. Getting into to, to how people dealt with this. So for some variety in their rations, a lot of men took to fishing. You can see lots of pictures online of men on these ships with their fishing rods that over the side. Makes sense. Like, it gives you something to do with your day, too. Yeah, right? it's, like, it's a good way to get some new food, and, you know, it's it's, uh, it's entertainment. You know, fishing is something to do. So getting to the part that I I, I think maybe is <laughs> yeah. the thing that you were noticing. So It, it is. So there's a story of one of, of a crew on one destroyer. So remember, all of these men had, di- had been disarmed. The ships have been disarmed, and the men have as well. So no one has any weapons. There's a story of a crew on one destroyer constructing a spring-loaded gun to hunt seagulls, <laughs> which I think is amazing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to picture being excited to eat a seagull. First off, I'm, I mean, if you're not eating, I'm against, I, I I'm it. against violence towards birds and animals in general. But like, I would say in this context, that's a pretty cool, in, ingenious thing to to be able to make. Um, I'm just picturing like the first guy that's like, "Hey, man, I made a gun." It's like, seagulls. wait, what do you and like? His buddies are like, what, what's wrong? What with do you, you? What do you mean you made a gun? And then he's like, pulls it out of his jacket. He's like, oh, it's a seagull gun. I'm, I'm also picturing like the seagulls eventually figuring it out and be like, yeah, don't go over there. Don't go to that. Don't, boat. don't go to the one ship that has a gun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, the German crews again, like I said, they they were slowly reduced. They slowly got more defiant. Uh, actually, on May 31st of 1919. To celebrate the third anniversary of the Battle of Jutland, the German naval flag was hoisted, along with a revolutionary red flag. Interesting. Which is very interesting, because it kind of demonstrates the really convoluted, confusing nature of what these men are going through and the feelings that they're having. Because you have the defiance kind of against Britain of hoisting the Imperial German Navy ensign, but then you also have this red flag of revolution kind of showing that... We're not totally in line with this, but this is still who we are. Right. Like, we're still Germans, but we're, we want to be a, a communist Germany. Yeah, more or less. It, it, it's just kind of one of those shows of defiance that kind of covering all the bases. It's very interesting. So this brings us to the main topic of today's show. This section of the notes is just titled The Scuttling. It's like a Seinfeld episode. Yes. What's the deal with the German fleet? <laughs> Uh, Almost up until the signing of the Treaty of Versailles in June 1919, the Allied powers were arguing about what to do with these ships. You know, they're interned. They have these crews on them. What do we do with these? Most of the nations involved wanted a little piece of that fleet for themselves. I mean, these are these are some pretty sweet ships here. I would like to have some of those. Uh, France wants some of those. I think the U.S. wants some of those. Everyone involved wants some of those. The main opposition to this. Like, of course, Germany didn't want her fleet to be broken up and, and given away. 
that makes sense. Right. Britain also did not want this. Do you know why? Why? Well, if you're the premier naval power in the world, you probably don't want other people getting sweet naval stuff either. Yeah, Britain basically just wanted to preserve their supremacy at sea. So this okay. this fleet that they had spent the last kind of few decades having this rivalry with, you know, sometimes more of a Cold War thing, and then the last few years they've been in an actual shooting conflict with this Navy. They don't want other people to have these. So they're they're kind of just saying, well, we could just, like, maybe not give them to anyone. We could break them up for scrap. And keep what you want, basically, and then, yeah, scrap Yeah, or, or maybe we could just keep all of them, you know? <laughs> we, we know what to do with ships. So, yeah, Britain definitely is opposed to sort of splitting this up and giving, giving it out to everyone. That might be important later for our story. I can totally see the U.S. being like, hey, we helped. We want all of it. We want the good stuff. Yeah. Give us, we were here for the end. Give us, give us the good stuff. Give us some of them sweet destroyers. Um, <laughs> uh, so regardless of their ultimate fate, it was decided that these ships would be formally surrendered by June or by the 21st of June 1919. So again, up to this point, the crews have been interned. The ships have been interned. There has been no formal surrender. These are technically, in the most close sense of the word, still the property of the Imperial German Navy. They have not surrendered. That's why they're still crewed by, you know, their original crews, more or less. So this this kind of comes down and this becomes very obvious that the crew is or the the fleet is going to have to surrender. On learning this, Admiral von Reuter, he starts making preparations to, oh, I guess I guess quite literally at times, throw a wrench into these plans. (laughs) And basically preserve the honor of the German Navy. So this had been something with the higher-ups before this. This had been ordered by them. When it started to look like a full surrender might be a possibility, you had these rumblings of, okay, what are we going to do with the fleet? There's no way we're actually going to surrender this whole fleet. And the Royal Navy at this time is kind of also playing the same game. They obviously know that they might not just give us this whole fleet intact. Right. So they start making plans also for seizing the ships before they can be scuttled. So it's kind of everyone, it's sort of like, it's like that game you play with your hands where you try to smack the other person's hands, and yeah. everyone's just kind of trying to trying to make sure the other person's not doing anything first. Due to the terms of the armistice, there were no armed guards allowed on the German ships. That was one of the things that the Germans were able to basically get out of this, is that under the terms, you know, they haven't surrendered, they're not technically prisoners, so you cannot put armed guards on our ships. Right. So that'll be important for this. The Royal Navy plans for this seizure action of the ships were made for June 23rd. June 23rd, 1919. Scheduled for the day when Rear Admiral Sidney Fremantle would return from naval exercises. Okay. This is where the story gets interesting. This is where some conspiracy theories could start coming up here. All right. So this portion of the British fleet leaves Scapaflow on the 21st. So under Rear Admiral Fremantle, they're going out for naval maneuvers. I don't know what they were doing. I, have, I, I don't know what they were actually maneuvering. Um, but some sort of naval maneuvers that they were doing on the 21st. Now, if I'm a German admiral and I'm mm-hmm. under internment, by mm-hmm. this fleet, and a good chunk of that fleet leaves, that's probably when I'm going to use my secret plans to scuttle the fleet. Uh, yeah, sounds like a great time. Sounds like a perfect time to do that. 
So again, the groundwork for this had been laid, you know, weeks, months in advance. The order was finally given on the 21st to scuttle the fleet. So in this case, this, this involved basically opening any hole on the ship that could be opened. So talking about torpedo tubes, portholes, anything that can be opened is opened. <laughs> Open it. Any sort of watertight hatch. If it can be destroyed, destroy it. If it can be damaged, damage it. You also have damage, destruction of things like any sort of firefighting equipment. Yeah, anything that could be like damage control type stuff. Yeah, you, you see descriptions of... You know, the, the average German sailor probably didn't have explicit orders about this, but the officers definitely did. So these officers, they start to, you know, leave. Ah, I'm going to I'm going to leave this big hammer yeah. semi right semi suspiciously next to this water pump pipe that might be <laughs> useful if you needed to, to bail water out of the ship. But if you hit it with this hammer, it's probably useless. So if anyone <laughs> needs that later, it's there. Yeah, things like fire extinguishers, any sort of specific tool that was needed to close a hatch or things like that. Some of those things are just dropped over the side or they're moved. And again, these guys are under guard, so they have to do this kind of carefully. You know, if, if a British guard sees you dropping a fire extinguisher over the side of the boat, you're probably going to get in trouble. But they do this kind of over over a, a span of time, kind of just undoing any any possible safety measure that's there on these ships. They're just kind of undoing it. Interesting. So this this order is given to finally go. Say, start scuttling these ships. Arguably the most important of, of all of these actions is the hoisting of the Imperial German Navy standard for what would be the last time. So this final act of defiance, as these ships are going down, they're going to be flying their flag. Right, they're basically like, yeah, like we're, they're going down on their own terms, and they're they're Imperial German vessels when they sink. Mm-hmm. So, of the seventy-four ships that were interned, fifty-two were successfully scuttled in about five hours. It's pretty, it's pretty good. That's a pretty good success rate if that's what you're trying to do. The first ship to go down was the Frederick the Great. That was about twelve sixteen p.m. This German officer is quoted as saying, "It was a marvelous sight." All over the vast bay, ships were in various stages of sinking, which is such a strange thing to hear from a naval officer. So I, I guess if that's your mission, yeah, like, yeah in, like it, in the context, it makes it makes total sense. But it is it's funny to see things kind of turned on their heads here. Uh, so British ships uh, and crews were able to beach twenty two of the ships in the shallow water, so they were able to save some of them. All in all, right. the 400,000 tons of material lost in the scuttling represent the greatest recorded single-day loss of shipping in history. I mean, I, I don't know when you would lose more, honestly, like when you're purposely trying to sink them. Like, yeah, like, if those were, like, losses in a battle, that would be catastrophic. Right, right. Like, I, I, think, I think if someone is sinking their own fleet is the only way you could possibly lose this much. So this action also leads to the final German casualties of World War I. So in the process, as these British ships are going from ship to ship, trying to see what they can save, what they can tow into shallow water, nine German sailors are shot and killed. Nine, possibly ten. I've seen some different sources say that one ship's captain was killed plus nine sailors, and some just give the number of nine. Nine to ten German sailors and or officers are killed as this is playing out. This And that's just them, like... Not complying, not stopping. Yeah, They've so been. it's it's not super clear. Some some of these could have been British soldiers g- 
getting on board these ships, trying to put out fires, trying to close up bulkheads, things like that. And yeah, I imagine we won't know. And, and, and like, shooting Germans in the process, because again, they're they're sort of standing by, not complying with orders. That's kind of the whole point of scuttling the well, fleet. And like, who knows what the mindset of the British soldiers are? Like, if you were a guy who a never saw combat, like, and this was your one chance, right? Um, and like, you know, your buddies aren't going to say anything. So like, yeah, he was being aggressive. I had to. And like, everyone's going to look the other way. Yeah. And one source I read said that a lot of these casualties came from one particular British ship that sort of was sailing past them, firing more or less blindly into these German vessels, just more or less out of frustration. Because what else are you going to do? Right. <laughs> it's one of those, you, you had one job situations. Uh, and, and what else <laughs> right. What else are you going to do? I mean, you've you have failed in your task of keeping the German fleet afloat. <laughs> so, yeah, it seems like a lot of that was done pretty much out of frustration. But yes, nine or possibly ten Germans are killed in the process here. No casualties for the British. Because, again, the Germans are disarmed. True. Well, except for their seagull Aside gun. Aside from their seagull gun, which would be, honestly, like, <laughs> you never want to root for something like this. But honestly, if someone had been killed by the seagull gun, it'd be an interesting part of military history. <laughs> Can you imagine being, like, the British officer that would have to write that report up? I'm just imagining, like, a one German sailor, like, takes a gun off of a British soldier and like he's about to about to kill a british soldier and then a seagull just swoops in and takes it <laughs> and he's like it's payback and he just turns the gun on the german officer and, and executes him that's my that's my <laughs> seagull fantasy here so german crews were rescued from the water they were treated as pow's which i would imagine at that point after taking like hostile action like right so at this have. point like these are no longer just interned crew these are now pow's uh, engaging in hostile action. Uh, so yeah, this is kind of the end of the story of the scuttling. In terms of the aftermath, so the Allied powers obviously expressed some indignation at what happened with this fleet. Makes sense. However, there is plenty of reason to believe that Britain was perfectly happy with this result. Uh, so one British admiral, Admiral, it looks like Wemyss, it could be Weems. I don't know. We could have like a Samuel Pepys situation here with the pronunciation. <laughs> I'm just going to call him Admiral Wemyss because that's what it looks like. Uh, he says, quote, it disposes once and for all the thorny question of the redistribution of these ships. Yeah, I suppose that does help. That, sounds, like that, that, that just solves your problem for that you. That sounds like someone who's perfectly happy with what happened. I, think, I guess it's pretty much saying like, wow, that saved us a lot of work. It's like, oh, no, you sank the fleet that we were going to have so much trouble deciding what to do with it. Uh. On the German side of things, Chief of Naval Staff Reinhard Scheer, who we've talked about before, he says, quote, I rejoice over the sinking of the German fleet in Scapaflow. The stain of surrender has been wiped out from the escutcheon of the German fleet. The sinking of the ships has proved that the spirit of the fleet is not dead. This last act is true, the best traditions of the German Navy. Interesting. So the, the same guy who wanted them to sail out in this suicide mission at the end of the war, he, he sort of finally gets a little bit of what he wants, this sort of last act of defiance. It's interesting that like that act of defiance is, I guess, the thing at the end that he truly wants. Yeah, it, like, it doesn't really matter how it happens necessarily. Um, he just wants it to be on their terms, right? It's 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 just like any argument. You want you want to get the last word in, and at least mm -hmm. from his perspective, the thing he can control the naval aspect of things. 
he can now argue that, well, we kind of won because we never surrendered our ships. Nice. It's a, it's interesting. It's an interesting story that I didn't know a lot about. Like I know, I knew the results. Like I knew that Germany scuttled a majority of their fleet, but like actually hearing how they did it and like all the politics that goes into it. Cause you just assume that like, Oh, they were prisoners and Britain, you know, was in control, but like, there's so much more, there's so many different actors at play here. Yeah. Like I, I don't think I'd ever heard of this before I started researching it. I came across it for a weird reason. Cause I was doing Scottish Gaelic on Duolingo. And so I started mm-hmm. reading about like all the islands around Scotland, like the Orkneys. And then I came across Scapa Flow. And then in the Wikipedia, I clicked on the link for the scuttling of the German fleet. And that's how we got here today. Um, nice. I love when we find random stuff it, like that. It's also crazy how long after the end of the war this happens. Right. Yeah. Like, this isn't like a week after. Right. This is this is like months and months after you know what we consider World War One is over. It's a fascinating story. I'm glad we were able to do this. It's a different story than we normally do. Obviously better for a bonus episode. Right. And I think that's what we want to do with these bonus episodes. Like if you, if we just made another breakers episode, like we would just do that for a breakers episode, right. with a normal shipwreck or something But like, I don't know. This is just kind of a next level thing or a different thing or something adjacent. I definitely want to keep doing stories like this that yeah. don't quite fit into the main show, but like are very much adjacent to the main exactly. show. So yeah, um, I guess, uh, unless you got anything else, I just want to say thank you everybody for the donations to Patreon. Um, you know, we really appreciate that you value the show enough to give us a couple, a uh, couple bucks. And with that being said, uh, thanks for listening. Thank you, everyone.